You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. I don't know about you guys, but I've been watching the Olympics. Anybody watching the Olympics here? I don't know if college students watch the Olympics, if it's that big a deal to you. But I've been learning some cool words like twizzle and triple sow cow and stuff like that. It's been really educational. But one thing that... um. Not in every sport, but in most of the, the, the sports, they, um, they do this performance, and then they'll spin around, and they'll end, and then it's over. And then they'll come to this one place, kind of like a little holding place, and they just sit there, and they wait for the judge's response. You guys know this part? And um, they're kind of like, You know, and you're thinking, what is going through their heads right now? And that the judge, the, the, the panel, which is really interesting, it goes back, that panel goes the whole way back to the Greeks. It was called the Bema. And they would, um, this panel, it, it judges like their style, their costume, the technicality, um, how well they pulled it off, how well it was choreographed with the music or whatever. And then they give them this score. And then there's this, uh, this moment when they, the person is just waiting there for their score. The judges will tell them, and you either see like this excitement or this just delation of, uh, oh, I thought it was, t- I guess I shouldn't have fell, or I wish I'd have done better. <laughs> and um, as I'm watching it, I can't help to think that each of us will have that opportunity someday in life when this life is past, that we also will stand before a judge. God. We're going to look at that this evening. And this, this time, what is frightfully scaring, scary um, in many regards, is that God is just. Perfectly just. And I argue with my wife, like as I'm watching the Olympics, that the, the judges, I'm like, how can they be impartial? I mean, she's a Russian and she's in Sochi. If that's a Russian judge, isn't you, don't you? Are they just? But God, there is no partiality in him at all. Because he knows all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And we'll stand before him and he is perfectly just. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. If you think about the things that you've done up to this point and the life that you lived, and he will be able to sit there and he'll know all of it. And he'll be able to judge you perfectly according to what is due. I want to look this evening at an example of God's justice. Um, Daniel chapter 5. Illustration of God's justice in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. And, you know, this is a privilege to teach this because if you were here three weeks ago, I think it was, Tanner spoke on, I think it was Daniel chapter, was it four? Nebuchadnezzar? And we're following up on that on Daniel chapter five, which is his great or his grandson, or it could be his son, Belshazzar. Um. Daniel's one of those, I don't know about you, but he's one of those guys in Scripture that I admire. 
And we're going to look at his life a little bit this evening, but we're not going to focus on his life. At this point, in chapter 5, this has been 70 years since chapter 1, when Daniel was first captured and brought to Babylon. Daniel, Daniel is not a young man anymore. He's probably in his, um, his late 80s, his mid-80s. From chapter 4, where Tanner spoke, that was 23 years ago. A lot's happened. And um, we're going to look at uh, this man, Belshazzar, who uh, is king at this time. He's in his mid-30s. And he's one of those guys who loves to live it up. No matter what else is going on in life, this guy is the life of the party, as you're going to find out. The... um, Chapter 5 opens up, and what I'm going to do is, because we have a lot of ground to cover, I'm going to be doing a lot of summary. I'd encourage you guys to study it on your own, too, as you have your notes there. But chapter 5 opens up, and it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And you say, that was a big party. I mean, that's a big deal. But in this day and age, this was an average-sized party. This was... um, Back in that day, when you you threw a feast, um, historical records say that um, it was no big deal for a thousand animals to be slaughtered daily for the king. They comprised of horses, camels, oxen, donkeys, deers, birds, ostriches, geese, chickens. Like, it was... Big parties were like like this. They were not an exaggeration. It was a normal thing for a king to throw a lot to to, to show off for his princes and his guests. But this is a unique party. It says that Belshazzar drank wine in in the presence of the company there. And the idea was that um, they actually excavated and they found this ballroom. And it's a, it's a great room. And there was a place that was elevated and it was lifted up. And behind it was this huge plaster wall that they excavated. And they, they believed that the most important person that evening, which would have been the king, would have sat on this elevated platform. And in front of everybody, the king would be drinking wine and leading in toasts. Kind of living it up in front of everybody. And he, he kind of got carried away probably because of the alcohol. He made some stupid mistakes. It goes on down here. And it says that he tasted the wine. And uh, he had this idea. And he said, you know, my father had the Jews' precious golden um, dishes and cups and goblets. Bring them out, and we're going to make toast to them. He wants to show off. He wants to show off what he's got. Show his riches. And so they brought him up. And they start to use these, uh, they, were, they were holy, set aside for the temple of God, all of these different dishes and hardware that would have been used in God's temple. And here's Belshazzar drinking. And it goes down and it says that um, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. There's so much going on here. I want you guys to, to catch on to this. You have a man 
who in front of everyone is making himself a drunken spectacle. He's the king. Not only that, but he's leading all of, the, all of his guests. And if you look down, it says that their concubines were there and their wives were there. This was, this was a crazy, crazy party. And then on top of that, they call for God's, the temple of God. They want um, these instruments brought in to blaspheme him. It was a way of saying he thought he was so great that the, the Jewish God, look, we're going to praise the gods of silver, stone, wood, and metal in your face, God. That's how the, the, the plot to this opens up. Um, a couple things I'd like to show you there about Belshazzar, and that is uh, open sin. No shame in the, in, um, in the face of God. He, he opens he sins openly. Sometimes in my own life, I think about this, guys. It amazes me what I do before a holy God who sees me. Belshazzar has no cares. Does not care, and he knows, but he does not care what he does in the face of an open God. We do that the same today. The second thing I'd like you to notice is that Belshazzar is totally careless in the face of danger. You see, what is happening is um, while they are having this huge feast, King Darius of the Medes is outside and he has, let, he has laid siege to the city Babylon. Okay? And um, they know it. Uh, Darius has been there for a long period of time, but Belshazzar has so much confidence in the city the beautiful city that Tanner described a couple weeks ago with the hanging gardens and the, the mountain that his father had built for his wife. It is an amazing city. Let me read some of the, uh, the facts about this city. It says that um, Babylon was about 14 miles wide. Its great outer wall was 87 feet thick. The wall was 87 feet thick. And 350 feet high. It's massive. It has huge, great bronze gates in the walls. There was, it was surrounded by bronze gates. You're not going to take a battering ram and ram through a, a bronze gate that fast. And then um, the, on, the, on top of the wall, there was a road that was big enough that four chariots could ride side by side by side the whole way around the wall. The wall is, am is amazing. And the city's strength is in its wall. Um, on top of the wall, there was hundreds of other towers that reached 100 feet taller. Okay, This is a massive, huge structure. The, Euphra the, the Euphrates River flowed into the, the city. So they have plenty of water. It flows into the city and it flows out the other side. And they could control it by a system of gates. Okay, so they have plenty of water. And they have years of food stored up. And you know what Belshazzar's thinking? We are fine. There, there's nothing that's going to touch us. And he's living it up there. And then um, the party's over in five, chapter 5, 
verse 5, it says, in the same hour, the finger, a finger appears. Now, whether it was a finger or it was a hand, Scripture says it was a finger, and it writes out for us, for, Bel- for Belshazzar, a word in a sentence in the plaster. Most likely, if he was up on this elevated place, there was plaster behind him, and Scripture says that the, that the, the writing was in the plaster. It was over top his head in the same hour. Can you picture it? Judgment right over the king's head. Look at his response. It says the king's countenance changed. He turned white as a sheet. He knew what he was doing. And he did not know what that meant. It was on to say that his thoughts troubled him so that, his jo- that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Have you ever been so scared that you've lost control? I have one time. Where I was so scared that my body just started, it actually, I took off running. And I knew I was running. It was weird because I was running this high off the ground. And I I just took off running because I was so scared. Belshazzar was that scared and scared. It says his knees knocked together. And so he does instinctually the same thing that his his grandfather does. He calls for three groups of men. He calls for, first, the, um, the astrologers, those who knew and understood the stars. Maybe they could understand something through the stars. The Chaldeans, which would have been something like a spirit reader or a spiritist or some sort of guy who understood dark and secret mysterious things. And then lastly, the soothsayers, which would have been a, um, a type of wise men. And it's funny that uh, same plan, same result. When Nebuchadnezzar called these men, they all came running, and they didn't know what to do with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, here comes the same guys. Belshazzar says, I need help, and they all come running. And it says that they were greatly troubled, and their countenance fell, and the lords were astonished because they didn't know what it was either. And Belshazzar, he offers them everything he has. A gold chain, which is, I mean, gold was, it was the pinnacle of wealth. A robe of purple, which would have said royalty. And then lastly, you can have equal leadership in the kingdom. It's all that Belshazzar, it troubles him that much. He wants to know. And there's no help. I think there's a lesson in this. And that is um, that the world is no help, and they are useless when we stand before a guilty God. When we stand guilty before God, you know, there's things in life that we do to try to push off our guilt. We get really busy. We listen to we, we, we just listen to music. We watch movies. We engage in things. But have you ever sat still in a building all by yourself? just sat there. It's amazing what comes to your mind when it's just your conscience speaking to you. The world is no help to soothe a a person's conscience when we stand guilty before God. And Belshazzar is guilty. He is scared to death. And he calls in help and they are no help. And so the queen comes. Not Belshazzar's wife, 
most likely because, because of the entrance she makes and the way that she treats him, it's his mother. could be his grandmother. And there's a lot of history there, a lot of things that she remembers well because the same things happened to her husband, Nebuchadnezzar. And she speaks of a man. Listen to the, the way that she describes this man. In verse 11, she says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom the Spirit of the Holy God. I like that. He's this, this, this man, he serves a God that's set apart. He's not like the gods of wood and metal and stone. He's different. Let me tell you more about this man. He has light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. As you go down to verse 12, it says that this man, he has an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding and interpreting dreams and solving riddles and explaining enigmas, which, are, which is a puzzle. This man is Daniel. His name is Daniel, Daniel, who you called Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. That's her plan, is to call Daniel. It's funny that Belshazzar had never thought of this. I imagine maybe because of Daniel's age that he had been retired or he was off to the side, but he's not in the picture. And he, when everybody else runs in and they don't know what to do, Daniel comes in by himself. He's set aside. He's a different caliber. He's God's man. And he does nothing less than um, he teaches Belshazzar a sermon. He preaches a message to him. It starts out with uh, Daniel gives Belshazzar history. Remember your grandfather? Do you remember how God raised him up and whoever your grandfather wanted to kill died? And whoever your grandfather wanted to live, lived. God gave him those powers. He gave him that position. But when your grandfather was lifted up in his heart, God brought him down low to where he acted just like an, an animal. I think Tanner mentioned that he had concocted a disease or some sort of um, physical inability called lycanthropy. Like, like, where he actually acted and thought he was an animal. God brought him way down. Verse 20, or verse uh, 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. Listen to this. Although you knew all this, Belshazzar is not innocent. The things that he did in front of his guests, blaspheming God, Worshiping idols, Daniel says, you knew all this. And you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Go down to uh, verse um, 23. You know, um, towards the end, right above 24. And it says, and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not see or hear or know, listen to this, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Wow. See, Belshazzar has two problems. One, pride. 
You, have, you did not humble your heart. He's a prideful man. Two, he's a rebel. Although you knew. He didn't do this innocently. He knew full well what he was doing. In fact, he did it in front of the God who holds your breath and owns all your ways you have not glorified. You know, it amazes me that um, I look at my own life and the things that I wrestle with and the things that I see men and women wrestle with are the exact same things. We're prideful people. We want to do what we want to do, rebellious people, in front and is despite of who God is. The exact same things, the exact same way Belshazzar was. We're not that different. Sin is sin. Well, after this, God's justice is proclaimed in verses 25 to 28. Let's look there together. And this is the inscription, Daniel says, that was written. Mene, mene, tekel yefarsin. It's Aramaic. Now, couldn't the wise men read Aramaic? Yeah, they probably could. It could be that they couldn't interpret it because they were too drunk. It could be that they couldn't interpret it because each of these words are singular and they stand for something after them which they had no understanding. Daniel gives understanding to mene mene tekel yufarsin. To them it was just like choppy. But to Daniel he knew exactly because God told him what these words meant. And so he begins to unpack them in verses 26. The first word said two times, Mene, mene, God has numbered your days, Belshazzar. What does that mean? Literally, it means, um, Belshazzar, your number is up. It's up. Your day is done. God has said, that's it. And you say to yourself, wait a second. Who is God that he can just, who is, who is this God who can just come in and tell me what I can and what I can't do? Why can't Belshazzar, why can't you just live your life however you want to live? Belshazzar's not hurting anybody. People hurting are on the outside of the walls. Belshazzar's just having a party, right? Who is God that he can have a standard and impose it on me and then when I don't comply or obey, punish me, right? We've been studying the character of God for this whole semester. There's two things that I'd like to show you. First is that God is the creator. And he has, as the creator, that means that you are the created. The creator always has the right to do as he pleases with what he has created. Hebrews 4.13 says that all creation is naked and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.12, Hebrews 4.13, they are powerful verses. And if you look in the context, I believe you're going to find out that we're speaking of Christ, 
all things are laid open and bare. The idea of laid open is if you picture a man who has got a sword at your neck right here, you are vulnerable and laid bare. It's as if I expose my chest and you could see my heart. You know exactly what I'm thinking. That is whom we must give an account to. He is the creator. We're the created. He has every right to impose any demand that he wants on his creation. Secondly, he is eternal. Hebrews 9.27 says, For it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Now, if God is an eternal God, from eternity past to eternity forward, and He created man who reflects Him in His image, one of, the th- one of the marks that that is on you is you are also an eternal being. This, this flesh is going to die. It's going to, from ashes to dust to dust, it will return. But the soul, the soul is the Lord's. And if God at any time wants to retract His breath back to Him, He could do it. He can do it. And He will do it. And it's God's right to say, it is appointed for you once to die and then the judgment. Because He's eternal. He's the Creator. He is the eternal Creator. Your day's up. He says to Belshazzar, your number's up. Tekel means you have been weighed in the balance and have found wanting. Um, I got it, Andy. I'm closer. We don't use this set of scales much more. We have different type of bathroom scales. These, are, these would be hard to step onto every morning. But uh, thousands of years before Christ came, and you can look in like ancient tombs um, in Egypt, this set of scales was how business was done. I'm going to use this cross so it doesn't spin around. And the idea was that an authority figure, the king, the government, would determine a standard. And the standard weight was put on one side. Okay, And if you wanted to do business in this kingdom, then you had to match it. Okay, So if you say, well, I got this much gold here, what do you think? Well, they would say, okay, we have a weight here. This, it must equal this weight. And if the scales were off like this, if, if this was my weight as the king and... Guess what? You're going to need some more gold until the scales were leveled out. And what Daniel tells um, Belshazzar is, tekel means, you, Belshazzar, you have been weighed. You have been weighed by a standard and you have been found wanting. Tekel literally means too light. Belshazzar, you're too light. Your works are too light. They're not, worth, they're not worth anything. This is God's heavy standard. Belshazzar, you're too light. 
Let me ask you a question. What is God's standard? I'll use this glass of, of water as an illustration. What is God's standard? Let's look at Scripture. On God's side of the scale, I got this from a a systematic theology book, and it says God's justice, by the way, the words justice, it's the same word for righteousness. It's the same word. God's righteousness or His justice means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is Himself the final standard of what is right. What is on this side? God is the standard. His character. His perfect, holy, righteous character is the standard that Belshazzar is weighed by, that I am weighed by, that you are weighed by. In Romans 2.2, it says, uh, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. God is truthful. You are weighed according to that. Romans 7.12 says, therefore the law is holy, and the commandments holy, just, and good. God's character is made known through His law. The law is a reflection of who God is. On that side of the scale, holy, just, and good is what you're weighed by. That is what we are eternally weighed by. That's intense. That's just some of the things of who God is. What's on my side of the scale? Right? I read I'll read a couple places for you. Revelations 20, 12, 13, and 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up its dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up their dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. Romans 2, 5 and 6 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So on your side of the scale, on my side of the scale, on man's side of the scale, is our works. And we we have this idea that we're going to stand before God someday, and He's going to look at all the good things we did, and look at all the bad, and people have told me this, and look at all the bad things, and man, I just hope that I've done more good than bad. Guys, that's a lie. We are judged according to the good things of God and the things that you have done. Remember the time that you did the dishes for your mom? Yeah. (laughs) Remember, you were a good kid. You were a really good kid. Ate your food, cleaned your plate. You didn't even lie that much. 
It's a white lie, right? <laughs> Tackle. It's too light. It's too light. Your day has come. You've been found too light. Isaiah 64, 6 says that your righteousness, your righteousness is as filthy rags compared to God's standard. You say, um, and, and this, is, this is a good place for us to think through, what about the people who don't have God's law? What about the people who don't, can't, didn't never read the Bible? They didn't know about God's holy, just, and righteous standard. Because I know that's going through your head. Here's what God's Word says. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. It goes down in Romans 12, 14. For when Gentiles, people who are not Jews, who do not have the law by nature, do the things of the laws, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the works of the law written in their heart, their conscience. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by, of, by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Guys, how do you know that murder isn't wrong? Do you have to go to the Bible and say, oh, I better not kill him? <laughs> I mean, every culture believes and knows that murder is wrong. Especially if it's, if it's aimed at you. Same with thieving. There are certain cultures that think thieving is a good thing until they get stole from. And then there's this, oh yeah, I don't want to get, yeah, that shouldn't happen. Why is that? It's because God's, God's law is written on my heart. Guys, I know what is right and what is wrong. And man still does not do it. If I am from Sochi, Russia, and I'm driving on 90 and I'm going 120, and the cop pulls me over and he says, buddy, you have broken the law. And I said, I couldn't read the speed limits. I'm from Sochi. I'm still getting a ticket. Does that make sense? Even those who do not have God's word, they know. They know that they shouldn't live like this. And because of sin, which is rebellion, we still do. Because that is the bent of my heart. I want what I want I will rebel. That's just what sin has done to us. Let's keep going. Too light. Mene, mene, tekel, you farsen. If you read down one verse, you'll, you'll, you'll say, well, what's the word perez? It's the same root word. It's the same word, just spelled slightly different. Don't let that trip you up. Daniel explains what this word means. He says, your kingdom has been divided and given to others. Literally, the word euphorism, all it means is divide. Taken from you, given to another. You don't have it, it's over there. It was Babylon, now it's the Medes and the Persians. Divide. It's funny, um, not funny, but it's ironic that as Belshazzar is living it up in Babylon and having this party in the face of God, what's happening outside the city? 
You see, Darius has brought his army in, he's laid siege, and then he had a plan. And it's funny because it's what the Babylonians did years before. So what he did is he slowly began to dam up the Euphrates, which flowed in, which was their life source to the city. Not fast, but slow. He did not want it noticeable. He dammed it up, and he diverted the water through a canal to a swamp, which became a lake. It's the Euphrates River. And as it began to lower, he took the bulk of his army and he left. And you can picture the men from like up top the tower, and they're like looking over at the tower down here at the Darius's men, and they're like, hey, they're leaving. <laughs> He's not leaving. They got a plan. Darius takes the bulk of his men away, and he says, when the Euphrates River is waist high, let us know. And that's what they did. They dammed up the river, and that night, October 11th, when the, when the river had gone down, the gates to the city were wide open, unexpected. Darius sneaks in. And while Daniel speaks that night, Scripture says that Belshazzar was slain. Babylon was taken, and the, um, the scholars say that not an arrow was shot. It was given to them. God gave this city over. Justice had been carried out, divide, given away. You know, we have the same problem as, as Belshazzar. You see... Um, Belshazzar's problem was that there's a good judge and a guilty man. You see, God set Belshazzar up as king. And for God to be a good judge and to remain good, He cannot allow Belshazzar to carry on like this and maintain His goodness. And we think, couldn't God just... Let this one night slip by. Couldn't he allow this one little sin that I did? Guys, God is holy. He's light. And in him there's no darkness at all. He cannot let sin get by because he's good. And God says, I don't change. Because if I changed, that would be to deny who I am as God. So we have a good God and a guilty man, and for God to remain good, he must punish sin. He will punish sin. And you would say to yourself, but Andy, I'm not that bad. I, I, I don't, I mean, you're talking, you're talking like hardcore condemnation, eternal separation, right? I'm not that bad of a guy. I'd like to show you from, from God's law According to justice, where you stand. God's law in Genesis 9, 6, equal compensation, whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. I mean, that's just. If, if you kill somebody, brutally murder somebody, justice would say that if you've done this, then you should receive this, Right? Well, then you would say, well, I didn't kill anybody. Why are you so serious with me? Scripture would show you differently. 
Justice requires equal compensation. You would say, okay, well, who committed murder? I did. You did. What murder did I commit? God. What do you mean I murdered God? You see, this is what Scripture says. James 4, 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred to God? When we follow, obey, love the things of the world, it's hatred towards God. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated, far apart, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. The idea is that, guys, sin, what sin is, it's hatred towards God. And Jesus in the Gospels reveals our heart and the penalty in um, Matthew 5.21, I'm going to read it for you. Matthew 5.21, this is what Jesus said. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Okay, guys, let's put this together. Okay, this is important. If you are a God-hater in your heart, that means that that's what you want to do. You want, you have murderous intentions in your heart to kill a holy God. Okay? You see, if, if on the throne of, God claims the throne, and, but, and he says, this is what you need to do in life. And you say, yeah, but I want to do this. I want the throne. You guys, there's only one way to get rid of the king. You got to kill him. And Jesus says, guys, if you wanted to, you're guilty of doing it. You see, sin, R.C. Sproul said, sin is cosmic murder. That's how guilty we are. That's how serious sin is to a holy God. Mene, mene, your day is done. Tekel, too light, divide. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, the wages on one side, the wages of sin is death. That's just. Ezekiel 18.10 says, The soul that sins will die. That's justice. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus describes one of the judgments. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, I'm going to send my angels out, and they will divide like a shepherd with a rod the sheep, and I will say, come sit on my right side. And to them, the kingdom is yours, because you are my sheep, you're mine. But to the goats... We're going to say, sit on my left side. You are not mine. You have hated me. And for those on his left side, they are sent to eternal damnation. And it's just. It's what I deserve. Because I'm a God hater. I'm a God murderer. That's how serious my sin is. Where do you stand? Which section are you on?
your weight which is too light or Christ's weight? I want to talk about being justified. And I want to talk about a bloody cross because it's so important. We sing about it. We read about it. As a Christians, we love it. There was a man, um, I'd like you to picture yourself in his shoes. He was uh, an insurrectionist. He was hated by the people. He was a known thief. He was a known murderer. He had been judged and condemned to die. He was already judged. Scripture says you were already judged. He was just waiting for it to be carried out. Guys, we are just waiting for justice to be carried out. He was in his cell waiting to die, and a soldier came down and pulled open his cell, and the man thought, I guess this is the day. And the soldier says, no, you, you've, been, you've been set free today. And the man, and you said, what? What do you mean? I'm guilty. I'm supposed to be sentenced to die. And the man said, there was another man who um, has come, he's in his mid-30s, and the people have decided that they want to turn you loose and kill him in your place. So they took this man up, and it is very, very possible that he even walked past Jesus Christ as he walked out of the city. And you can imagine he felt guilty. And he probably ran. No one chased him because he was set free. It was, he was not guilty anymore, although he might have felt guilty. And... Um, this man, Jesus Christ, they, um, I imagine if I was Barabbas, I would have snuck back to see who this man was and to, to watch the sentence that was going to be carried out. And um, they brought all these witnesses, and they found that all the witnesses were liars, couldn't condemn them of anything. Finally, what they got this man on was um, he said that he was the Son of God, and for that, we're going to crucify him. And so that same day, they took him outside the city in a cross between two thieves where Barabbas should have been, and they killed him. And um, he died, and Barabbas went free. And you say, wow, what a story of um, a man giving up his life against his will, it seems, for another man. But, but the man who died... He had made these crazy claims during his life about people pitting their faith in him and believing in him. And then um, three days later, according to Scripture and according to testimony of real people, the man was not in the tomb. And people started to begin to wonder, maybe he wasn't a lunatic. Maybe he wasn't a liar. Maybe his claim to being the Son of God has more truth than we thought. And if that is true, and it wasn't just a man who died on the cross, but it was God's Son who died on the cross, then maybe this has more to do with than one Barabbas getting free. And when Jesus said, place your faith in me, and you will have life, maybe there's more to that too. And what was he getting at when he said that? I'd like to share with you a verse from Romans 5, 8, and 10. And it says, um, I'd like you to turn there with me too. We're going to close with this verse, Romans 5, 8, and 10. It says, but God demonstrated His love 
a very different, unique love. The kind of love that would die for a person who hates you. Not for a person who loves you, but a person who would hate you. That's God's type of love. But God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, while you were guilty, while you were deserving of death like Barabbas, you were already condemned to die waiting for judgment. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Why a bloody cross? People wrestle with this. Why do you Christians? What's, what's the deal with blood? And I'll tell you, it's because justice has been carried out on your behalf for, a, for your bloody crime. Much more than having been justified by His blood. You see, if this is God's standard that you need to live up to and you can't. Here's what happened on the cross. Where you should have suffered the consequences for your crime, Christ pours out His blood. He perfectly meets the standard. He met the standard perfectly. You can do anything you want, but Christ already has done the work. For by faith, you are, by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's not what you did to level the scales. Christ levels the scales, and the verse goes on. Much more than being justified, made righteous by His blood, we have been saved from wrath through Him. The wrath that was coming on you like an ocean is swallowed up in Christ. For when we were enemies, it's a beautiful word, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. This word reconciled, it is, um, it's an it's a, uh, accounting term. It means equal value exchange. Equal value exchange. God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Your insurmountable sin debt has come due, and God has paid it in full through His Son. You know, um, the disciple that... Christ loved. John was near the foot of the cross as Jesus died. And, he, and the last words that John heard as Christ died was, Tetelestai. Have you heard that before? Tetelestai. It means, in, in our language, it is finished. What's the significance of that? Jesus tilted his head back. He pulled up one last time to draw his breath and he cried, Tetelestai. It was a Greek expression most everyone present would have understood. It is an accounting term archaeologists have found in papyrus tax receipts with Tetelestai written across them, meaning paid in full. With Jesus' last breath on the cross, he declared, The debt of sin is canceled completely satisfied. 
That's beautiful. Imago Dei, how do we reflect this? Here's what I want you to take home. Two sides to this. God's justice on me is my ruin. God's justice on Christ is my righteousness. If you have not placed your faith in what Christ has done, and you're banking on what you're going to do, too late. Way too late. God's justice on you is your ruin. But if you've placed your faith in Christ, God's justice on Christ, it, what does that make you? It makes you righteous. On Christ's account and yours, positionally you are made righteous. Imago Dei, how do we reflect that? All praise to God. He's done it. He's done it all. That should be your life song. I'm going to ask the guys to come up um, who, are, who are going to lead us in worship. And um, I'd like to, as you guys come up, I'm going to keep talking for a, a couple more seconds. There's one last uh, application that I'd like to share with you. You know, as Christians, um, we hate sin, don't we? Man, I hate sin. That's good. Because I know what it cost my Savior. I know Christians who are consumed with guilt. And maybe you're guilty. Maybe you lay in bed and you are guilty and you need to stop. You need to repent and turn to Christ and, and place your faith in Him. But maybe it's false guilt which arises from pride. And here's what I mean. Um, if Christ has paid the debt, you are as guiltless as Barabbas. Okay? Barabbas might have been running like crazy, but I'll tell you what, nobody was chasing him. And if you want to keep working and trying to do things, and look what I did, look what I did, look what I did, God. Guys, it's out of pride. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I'd like, to, I'd like you to meditate and think that Christ paid the debt. There's nothing more than you can do to level the balance. It's done. Done. Let's close with, with um, singing, and then I'll come back uh, for a closing Word of prayer and a challenge. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.